Cast. Hello everyone, Earl Breon here. You know, one of our responsibilities as leaders is to teach uh, the people that we're leading to help guide them and help them improve. But we're not always fully aware of how we view those people and the impact that has on how well we teach them, how well we guide them, how many opportunities we make available to them. Today's podcast is all about that topic and how you may be misjudging a rock star for whatever reason. And maybe it's just because you don't understand exactly how to reach them. So I'm not going to say too much more about that topic because uh, today's guest, Lois Letchford, does an amazing job of sharing her story her son's story, and I highly recommend picking up a copy of her book because I guarantee it's going to help you lead somebody on your team better. And with that, here is the interview with Lois Letchford. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today's guest is Lois Letchford. Lois's dyslexia came to light at the age of 39 when she faced teaching her seven-year-old non-reading son, Nicholas. Examining her reading failure caused her to adapt and change lessons for her son. The results were dramatic. Lois qualified as a reading specialist to use her non-traditional background, multi-continental experience, and passion to assist other failing students. Her teaching and learning have equipped her with a unique skill set and perspective. As a teacher, she considers herself a literacy problem solver. Reversed, a memoir, is her first book. In this story, she details the journey of her son's dramatic failure in first grade. She tells of the twists and turns that prompted her passion and her son's dramatic academic turnaround. Lois, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Well, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, well, we're delighted to have you, and and I know uh, my guests, uh, or I should say my listeners of the show by now, are kind of know where this thing starts. Uh, when you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? Well, the first thing it brings to mind is leadership, and leadership in a field of literacy, and I'm certainly, I feel like I'm a voice crying in the wilderness mm. because it's, uh, I want to add my voice and my experience to the literacy debate, although it might not be accepted. And literacy's got a huge following. Everyone we know has to be literate today. Everyone. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the problems. But... We really only want to teach those who learn easily. So the burden of command, being able to add my voice to this conversation, is really what I am trying to do. Well, and, and you know, thank you for that, and thank you for that, that well-thought-out answer. I really do appreciate that. And, and uh, you know, I would just say this, from, from what I know of, of you and, and what you're doing on your various... Uh, social media channels, especially your YouTube presence, uh, I, I don't think you need to uh, tr uh, need to say that you're trying. I think you're doing a really good job at adding your voice to the discussion. 
the the question on or the hope on my end is that people are listening. I would have to agree. I, you know, I have to agree. I hope people are listening. My experience and my teaching and my learning come from teaching the most vulnerable students. And that puts me into a different category from normal. And yet a lot of the people who are, a lot of the names who are well known are teaching the children in the middle. So what they say works for the children in the middle. What my point of view is, is we can't take that middle population and then extend it to the lowest ones and say, those down the bottom have to do exactly the same thing. Mm. And that's a problem I think we're having with being able to distinguish what we have to do for all children. Yeah, no, I I agree 100%. It, it, it reminds me of uh, what you just said. It reminds me of one of my, my favorite TED Talks, and it's uh, Malcolm Gladwell. And it, it's titled Spaghetti Sauce. That's the name of the, the TED Talk. And he tells this story of a, of a metrologist. Uh, for the folks who aren't familiar with what a metrologist is, it's a scientist that measures things. And he talks about how he was hired by Pepsi, uh, to find the perfect sugar content for Pepsi. And he goes through this whole, uh, he ties it into spaghetti sauce later, but it started out with Pepsi. Um, goes this whole thing where the guy did all of this research with different types of uh, amounts of sugar in it and all that. And his response was to Pepsi, and it, it kind of upset him in the beginning. He said, there's no such thing as the perfect Pepsi there are only perfect Pepsis. And his point was, I think what you were just saying, there's no one, no one palate thinks, there's no one flavor that's going to please every palate. You need to have multiple options for multiple people. And I heard that in what you were saying is there's no one, one approach to education. You need to have an education approach for every learner, right? <laughs> Kind of. Okay. I get it. I understood exactly what you're saying until you come to every learner. You know, okay. I think what, what I want is curious teachers. Mm. What I don't want is a standard program that we're going to give to teachers and say, use this and this is going to work for every child. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the difference. Um, you know, the last time you and I spoke... We ended up talking about, now let me get his name right, Dr. Ignatius Semmelweis. Mm -hmm. And I said, I know him. Right. Now, we talked about Semmelweis because Semmelweis was a voice crying in the wilderness. He was a medical doctor in 1850 in Vienna. Have I got that right? Correct. And he started to examine the death rates among babies, and he had two wards, one ward that was uh, operated by midwives and the other ward that was operated by male doctors and medical students. And he started to ask questions. Well, the one ward, the ward 
operated by the midwives had fewer deaths than those operated by the male doctors. And he started to say, why? And during that process, he had to go through and try things and come up with, it made no difference, it made no difference. And when one of his fellow colleagues died, and it had absolutely nothing to do with those two wards, but she was a pathogen doing pathology who had pricked her finger in an autopsy that he started to work out there's something else going on here. Not only women die of this disease, but other people do too. And he worked out it was the germs that were being transferred from one ward to the other. And the male doctors were going from autopsies into the birthing ward and carrying all their germs with them. So he went in with this philosophy, we've got to wash our hands and use uh, a substance to help us get rid of the germs, which was, I don't know, the thing escapes me at the moment. Car anyway, he did it. Carbolic acid. That's right. We have a common name for it, and it's really brilliant for what it does. And he said, you've got to do this. And what happened? We all say, yes, it's very important. And they said, no, because the disease happens from within the body. It's happening in the saliva and in the germ, and not germ. It's happening from within the body. And he said, no, we're bringing them in. And his voice went dead. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what we're doing in literacy. We're saying we have to do this, we have to do this, we have to do this. And we're not looking at what else we have to do to engage our most vulnerable students in reading. So I feel a lot like Semmelweis saying, look wider, think wider, do things differently, and don't just repeat what we're doing at the moment. Yeah. That was a big long answer. <laughs> no, it was, I mean, it was a good answer, and, and I'll agree with you, you know, because, um, you know, just to kind of take that story to its ultimate end, the, the big problem at the time was, and it was a good, very good job of recapping the story, was nobody knew that germs existed at that time. The microscope hadn't been invented. Uh, um, oh, my goodness. The other it's another that, 40 years yeah, until we get antibiotics. No, no, no. It's another 40 years until Louis Pasteur comes along, isn't it? Correct. And, and then um, uh, Joseph Lister does his yes. work. And then we look back in history and we say, oh, man, Ignace was on to something, right? So how? So I guess my question kind of tying back to, to what you're doing and what your passion is, what is it going to take? What kind of breakthrough is it going to take for people to say, Lois was right. Why, why didn't we listen to her? Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm going to use the word frustrated. I get a little frustrated that we reduce the teaching of reading to letters and sounds and to decoding and to phonemic awareness. Mm. That's the big thing on today. We have to teach kids phonemic awareness. Yes. Yes, we do. And for those who learn it with ease, they pick it up and they fly with it. For those who struggle... It's like we've only got one bucket 
and they say we're going to fill it with phonemic awareness and they get nothing else until that bucket is filled. The reality is their bucket is very small, it fills very quickly, it overflows and they still don't learn it. And we still keep filling that bucket and that's the only thing we see. Instead of saying phonemic awareness is one component of a very complex problem and we have to do more than just teach children about phonemic awareness. This month, I picked up a 16-year-old child who was totally non-reading. This month, August 2020, he has been through multiple interventions, multiple strategies over the past eight years. He's going into ninth grade, and he is totally non-reading. Why? Because all we are seeing is that he cannot do phonemic awareness. Now, when when you use that word uh, phonemic awareness for people who aren't aware, what does that mean? Phonemic awareness is the ability to take language apart, take words apart, not language, take words apart, produce them into sounds, and then play with those sounds. So like a word like lap. Can we change the word lap to the word collap? Yes. Can we change the word collap to the word flap? Yes. And they're the easy ones, you know, adding. But then can you change a word like collap and take out the L? And then what word are we left with? Collap. And that's the ability to play with sounds, which is one really important component of learning to read. However, it's not the only component and children who struggle with phonemic awareness may struggle with it throughout their entire life. So it's not, although it's important, it's not the most important component of learning to read. It's one of many. Mm. And that's where I start. I have to take a deep breath. And I think that's where we want teachers to be curious about learners. If the child can't do that, the question is, what else are we going to do to teach this child to read? Mm. What else is going wrong that we have to do to teach this child to read? Now, I, I want to, in, in just a second, I want to kind of dive in, and I really kind of want to, to share your origin story, if you will, because I want people to understand why you're so passionate about this. But before we get there, I, I've got to ask this question, because when we spoke the last time, it was something I meant to ask and didn't. Is this a problem that is unique to the English language, or does this apply to all languages? I think it's unique to languages that rely on sound. So it'll be the Latin and Greek-based languages. Okay. Okay. I don't know if it works for Chinese, Japanese, and Russian. Okay. Because they're more symbol-based, right? Yes. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, Okay. So 
to to catch folks up because you know you and I kind of slid right into this like like old <laughs> friends. Uh, but you know, I mean, I, I'm good. I'm glad people were able to hear the the passion because you know I I, I I've seen it um, on the on the video we did for the systemic diversity and inclusion group. Um, but your story. Uh, so you, you've kind of struggled with this personally for most of your life, but your your real drive, your impetus, if you will, right, kind of started with uh, a disparaging remark about your son, right? <laughs> Very much so. Oh. Well, it was really compounded. Yes, it was a fascinating story that uh, my son failed first grade. My second son, Nicholas, failed first grade. And when I say failed... I mean, was obliterated. He went to school on day one knowing he couldn't do the work and his teacher ignored him or shouted at him every day throughout the year. He bit his fingernails, he wet his pants and I dressed him for school every day, which was disastrous. The end of that year, we have him tested because he's not doing very well and the school can then say, well... You know, he can only read 10 words. He showed no strength on this test and he has a low IQ. So that's the start. I had the opportunity to remove him from school for six months and we went to England as my husband had study leave and I taught Nicholas at home and I take a series of books with me which were called Success for All, which were an abject failure. I, he couldn't remember any words, he couldn't remember sound, he couldn't do anything. And I started to get frustrated and did the same thing as the teacher and I blamed my son. You're not working hard enough. Yeah. My mother-in-law was with me and she said, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. And they were the best words that anyone's ever said to me because it made me stop and it gave me an alternate route. So I started to write simple poems with rhyming words, which we I read to him. We found rhyming words and he illustrated, and immediately there was a change in our classroom. There was no pain. He was enjoying what we did. We were laughing through the poems. He loved the illustrations. And that was the start. And I kept writing poems and writing poems and writing poems. And then I have to mention the decoding because people will think you didn't teach it. I had was given a series of books to teach decoding called Hear It, See It, Say It, Do It, and that made a difference. Multisensory, very simple words, and he could do it. The poetry is what took over and the order of things happens. The poetry came first, then the decoding came second. And then I started to write these poems with double O in it called, with about the words cook, look and book. Like Captain Cook looking at a book as he completed the mapping of Australia, taking a look. That simple poem has phenomenal ideas. And Nicola said to me, can I see Captain Cook's original maps? That blew me away. <laughs> and then he said, who came before Captain Cook? I said, that's easy, that was Christopher Columbus. And he responded with, and who came before Columbus? And that question floored me. Because I, I don't know about you, but I had never even thought about who came before Columbus. 
So we return to Australia. He goes back to school and I see the lady who had done the testing and I said, Nicholas has asked these amazing questions. And she stood there, put her hands on her hips and said, well, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. Mm. I don't respond. I don't think quickly when people floor me with such words. So I went away and I thought about what had happened. And I went back to her and I said, you can call him whatever you like, but if he is the worst kid you've seen, don't expect him to learn like everyone else. And that was the day that I turned the teaching methods upside down. Yeah, and, and, and you, you've, done a really, <laughs> you've done a really good job in, in my opinion um, I mean, you know, reading through the book, and uh, again, for those who who didn't catch it in the, in the intro, it's titled "Reversed: A Memoir." Um, I, I love the cover because, so hearing you tell the story, I'm assuming uh, that that map it, it ties into the the Cook's map. It does. I it does. It. And see, you know, and there's the a there's a line in the book. That really, I don't think I've got the book on hand. Yes, I do. I have the book, a line in the book that just encompasses everything for me. And it comes at the end of this chapter. Uh, and it says, just let me find it for you. Here I am on the outskirts of Oxford University a seat of learning for almost 1,000 years, discovering people whose names have been long forgotten by most and teaching my child who supposedly has a low IQ. Mm. And that is the map. It's a map of Ptolemy, who was the first map maker of the world. He lived in Alexandria in Egypt, and he never left the shores of Alexandria, yet he took the information from sailors and drew this map. When the Dark Ages came, his map disappeared from the European continent, and only through printing and the need to the printing press and the need to print things did his map come to light. And that's when Columbus found it. And that's why Columbus decided he was going to head across the ocean, Columbus's map was over a 1,000 years old. Mm. And that intrigued Nicholas and I. And when, because we were in Oxford, we went to look for a Ptolemy map and the lady at the gift shop of the Bodleian Library says, hmm, Ptolemy map. Oh, yes, here it is. Here's a book of Ptolemy maps. That'll be five pound, please. Nice. So it was incredible. And Nicholas looks at maps still today and says they give you so much more information than just a name and a place. Mm -hmm. So they're historical documents. So, yeah, so that it was phenomenal. It, it changed my world. But I think what's most significant about all of it was it changed my view of Nicholas. I no longer saw him as a slow child. I saw him as a child who could think 
And that perception, that twist in mindset was critical to the way I taught and seeing him as someone who could achieve was another part that made me say, this child can do anything. Well, and I think that is extremely important, you know, because it's, it's, you know, I, I get a lot of uh, like C-suite types that, that listen to the podcast and they may be thinking, okay, what does this have to do with, with what I do? Well, first of all, as Lois mentioned, we still have a literacy problem in the country. So there are very good chances that you have people working for you that are struggling with these same issues. That's one. But but two is what Lois just said. She had a view of, of who her son was and approached them in a certain way in the beginning. But once she opened up and took a different approach, saw her son in a totally different way and unlocked, helped unlock the potential that he had all along. And so you've got employees in your organization right now that are going through the same thing that because of these things that you think are normal and they're not normal, you've maybe discounted their initiative, their, their intuitiveness, their, uh, their ability to innovate. And you're not getting all the value you can get out of them. So tying this back into the leadership here for just a second, the, the, the lessons that Lois is sharing here while she's talking mainly about literacy and, and education, they apply directly to you. Because if you have somebody on your team who learns differently, who, who picks up tasks a little bit differently, uh, that's not a bad thing. You just have to be willing to be open to it and figure out how to engage and how to reach them and how to get them to, to being their best. Because Lois, correct me if I'm wrong here, that effort uh, that, that you put in and, and, and all of the time that you took with your son paid off big time, right? <laughs> and not paid off one way. It wasn't only my son that gained. Right. It was me. Yep. Too. And and I, I appreciate what you're saying there about taking this to a wider audience because, again, I think it's not only the employee who will gain, but you will too. And what it did for me was it made teaching of reading so exciting and I got away from this boring stuff that we think the only thing children have to do to say, what else do I have to do? Yeah. And that's transformative. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing the ways that we, we judge people. Like, you know, you mentioned the, the teacher, uh, called the worst child she's taught in 20 years. How many times do employers say that about employees? And it's, it, it's not necessarily true, right? That's yeah. And it, if that's all we see, if that's the lens we're looking through, you know, that's all you get. Right. Right. You know, and I think that's what we want to highlight, isn't it? If that's all we see, that's all you get. But, you know, the other component of this is it needs you to take a step back. It needed me to take a step back and stop and think and reevaluate to then approach Nicholas and my other students from a different way. Right. 
That's the lesson I took away from it. Let's reflect. Let's think about how we can do things differently. I love it. Um, now, one of your chapters is, uh, and, and, and before I say the name of the chapter, this is something that is has come to light, I'll say, in the last you know few years uh, with people like, uh, I think Richard Branson is probably the, the biggest uh, example of, of someone uh, with dyslexia and, and finding success. But you call, uh, you title chapter 19, The Gift of Dyslexia. Why is that? Ah, that's the title of the book. <laughs> I, that's the title of the book that I read. I found when I was in Oxford and I was in Blackwell's bookshop and I saw the book, The Gift of Dyslexia. I read the first page of it and it's about Ron Davis having the author having a handkerchief, a white handkerchief, the flag of disrespect, he calls it, placed on his head and told him he was dumb. And all the time he's holding his buttocks, trying not to wet his pants, and he can't. And I cried because that could have been my son. I don't know how old Ron Davis was, but my son was born in 1988, and here we're having the same problem. And that really killed me. I read further on through his book, and I laughed. I laughed at it. So I had this contrast, but reading that book gave me a way to approach teaching of reading that I now use for every other child. So that's why it's titled The Gift of Dyslexia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 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 uh, I've not read the book, you know, but but there's a lot of science kind of going into it now. Uh, you know, there are successful people with various learning. Uh, I hate to use the word disabilities, uh, oh, but I agree that that's that's the word that gets assigned to it. Uh, but but they're showing that that because of these struggles, uh, that they have these better developed analytical skills and listening skills out of necessity. And, and that helps them be successful in the future if they run into a teacher such as yourself that knows how to help them build those skills and cope with that. So uh, it, 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 it's interesting how something can be seen as such a weakness early on in life but such a strength later on in life. That's a fascinating component of it because it has to do with brain development. My son has two strikes against him. The first was that he had ear infections between the age of 8 and 18 months. I didn't realise how those ear infections impact the brain and brain growth. And what happens is when you've got ear infections, you don't hear the language. And dyslexia is a language disorder. And in fact, the brain, when it's not hearing it, doesn't connect those neurons hmm. or neurons. So that's the first problem that's happened. The second, he has a mother who was dyslexic. So you don't know what was there to even start with. 
So you've got these compounding issues going on, impacting brain develop development. The other thing that's happening is the whole time the brain is growing, Nicholas is doing puzzles. He's doing the things that he does really well. So his spatial awareness is just booming. So, yeah, you have brain changes that impact him forever. And very interesting that it takes Nicholas really until about 10th or 11th grade for a teacher to say, be in my AP class and have him shine. It came a little bit earlier than that, but it was the 11th, 10th and 11th grade teacher who really saw Nicholas's strength and allowed him to fly and learn the amount he needed to go on to university. Mm. Now, um, so it, to, to help people kind of down the, the road with the story here, so your son, Nicholas, uh, you, you just kind of mentioned he went to, to university. Um, he didn't go to just any university, right? Well, the first one was we were in Texas for his high school and then we actually returned to Australia. So his undergraduate degree was in Australia. Okay. And that became important because Australia doesn't have the common subjects you have to do in the U.S., so Nicholas actually did five and a half years of mathematics and engineering. He ended up with two degrees and he got an honours degree in both engineering and mathematics. So if you can imagine just doing five and a half years purely in your strength, that was his first degree. And then he went on and that's when he got his higher degree. Do you want me to tell them now? Uh, yeah, I, I think they're, they're wanting to know what, what happened to the worst student in 20 years. <laughs> I tell it that in January 2013, he was on a flight to London because he has a scholarship to do a PhD in the Department of Applied Mathematics at Oxford University. Mm. And in 2018, he received his PhD in Applied Mathematics from Oxford University. And that, that's a far leap from the worst student in 20 years with a low IQ and, and, and all that, right? That, that's a huge transformation. Yes. And, and I think the part that is closest to my heart and what is I find so difficult to say, the only reason my son achieved those goals was because we were not privileged. We were extremely privileged. Mm. And I have a problem with that. Never should something as fundamental as literacy only be achieved through extreme privilege? I mean, and that is a profound statement, especially considering everything that, that is going on uh, in, in the U.S. right now. You know, we're recording, we're recording at the end of August. Uh, the show will be airing uh, right now, looks like at the near the end of November. So unfortunately, we don't know where what we're going to look like by that time. But, but you're right. I mean, a lot of these, these issues that we see, you know, from a socioeconomic sta standpoint, from an equity standpoint, it, it stems from basic education, right? Yes, yes. And, you know, a lady, Kelly Sandrum Hurley, I think I've got her name right, is writing a book on adult dyslexia 
and she said these adult dyslexics fall into two groups. One, those who are supported, and two, those who are unsupported. Those who are supported can achieve things. Those who are unsupported, you know, the trail of destructions is really quite severe. It's really sad. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, it's it's one thing, and I think we talked about this the last time. I think I have very, very mild dyslexia. Uh, you know, there's some times where I'm reading words and, and uh, I have to look at it like three or four times because I think it says one thing and then it says something else. Or uh, I have a hard time with words that end in uh, ing. Uh, really? I, I always want to read it as IGN, like every single time. I read it as IGN. Uh, but now, you know, knowing what it's supposed to be, I'm able to kind of do the mental switch. But when I'm just yeah. reading it, IGN is what I see. Um, but, you know, kind of exp- if, if you can kind of explain to folks really what happens with dyslexia and that if you have some good tips, uh, you know, whether it is for a teacher, whether it is for a, a, a manager to potentially identify when somebody is struggling with dyslexia? The first thing you'll notice is the increased concentration required to do fundamental tasks. Mm. That's the first thing that you notice at at any level. And you notice the the physical, the shoulders come up to the ear to, to, to have someone read it to them rather than humiliate them. That would be the, one of the best things. But you have to be observant, and I think and it takes a little more time, that, you know, particularly in a workplace. And I think of the workplace because one of my students, one of my former students is now similar age to my son's mid-30s and in the workplace, and I think struggling to hold down a job in this climate. Mm. where jobs go quickly. So, you know, and they need to be given things that they can do and they're good at. So that would be the first thing. Uh, But teaching is, you know, teachers have to be more curious, curious about their students and about student learning. And, and, And that right there, that is one thing that I wish, A, the general public would get, but I really wish that teachers would fully appreciate is the impact that they have on their students. I know, I know some of them get it and some of them say they get it, but you know, uh, so it, it's interesting talking about your son having advanced degrees in applied mathematics, applied ma- or any type of mathematics is really kind of my weak suit in, in school. Uh, I mean, I took algebra one, I think three times in high school before I passed it. And the difference was my teacher. Yeah. I, I remember I took it with the first two, and, and I, 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 I barely, it's, it's not that I couldn't solve the problems. I was kind of a weird kid. I could solve the problems in my mind, but I couldn't work them out on paper. And we got graded on being able to work oh, them out on, pa- on paper. Yeah. yeah. Well, so when they asked me about rules and things like that, I, I didn't, I couldn't get the rules out. And that was what caused me to fail. But I got this teacher, Miss Hawley. I'll never forget Miss Hawley. And and I was acing her class. And about halfway through the year, uh, she was pregnant at the beginning of the year. About halfway through the year, it came time to uh, deliver her child. 
And so she was gone the rest of the year. And I went from, uh, I'm not going to say an A plus. I was probably like a B plus, low A, to again failing the class just because a new teacher came in. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what happens, isn't it? Well, I'm in your boat. I'm not a mathematician. My husband is super at mathematics, you know, brilliant. And that's where the two of my sons, uh, you know, they've got his brain and, and ability to do all of that stuff, whereas I can't do it. <laughs> and, then, and then on top of that, it's not only you can't do it, it's like you. You don't get teachers who can give it to you in a way that you understand. You know, and my husband talks about being in eighth grade and having a math class at lunchtime, and that's where he got his love of mathematics from. He's, that's where it started. You know, and it's not by doing the normal stuff. It's by doing all the fun stuff and, and seeing the patterns. And, and I'll never forget Nicholas coming back from one of his mathematics classes and said, there are just so many patterns in mathematics. I mean, they get in awe of the stuff. <laughs> so that's something that you and I never got. You're sitting there going through the rules, aren't you? What one do I have? And, and where are they? I don't know. I lost them. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That, that was, like I said, that was what tripped me up. And, and I remember getting in arguments with teachers. You know, they were like, they would come through and like I would I would have the right answer. How I got the right answer, I honestly couldn't tell you. But I would go through and it made sense to me what I was doing. But when they would ask me how did I do it, I couldn't articulate it. I couldn't explain it. And I'm like I'm I'm mad. I got yes. the right answer. Shouldn't yes. that be all that matters? Yes. <laughs> so, you know yeah. that's interesting because I have connected with Professor Joe Bowler from Stanford University. And she's a mathematics education person. And she would say the thinking behind the mathematics is really so important. And I think that's where you would have connected with her. This is, I got the right answer. And then we, to give you the language to say, this is what I did. And this is how I got there. I think it's what you needed. Right, right. And, and we've been talking about education, you know, kind of in, in the school systems and things like that. But uh, would it be fair to say that to a certain extent, workplaces and employers have a little bit of a responsibility as well? Oh, I hope they have. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's a tough, it's a tough lot. You know, we, I think we have to start asking the bigger question. What sort of society do we want to live in? And we're not asking that. We're just saying, do this, do this, do the exams. Teachers have to be accountable. And we're not asking, are we getting the results that we want? And if we did ask that question, the answer would be, no, we're not. So then we have to start asking, why are we doing it? What do we want for our society as a whole? That's my big thinking at the moment, but it's not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you just said something there that kind of reminds me or kind of takes me back to a comment you made a few minutes ago about kind of the difference, uh, kind of the difference between the the American education system and, and Australian and uh, I believe England's the same way, where when you go to 
when you go to your studies, you're, you're kind of, for lack of a better term, you are laser focused on your field of expertise. You're not so much, uh, like, for instance, with your son, uh, he got to, you said he got to focus on engineering and mathematics. There was not this push, like, you have to have art history and you have to have all of these things that if you already have a learning, uh, if you already have a learning issue, maybe it's just clouding the waters and, and making learning even more difficult because these aren't things that you care about. Well, I, you know, that your statement brings up so many questions because they, there's been not studies, but there was a YouTube clip taken in Lubbock at the university at Texas Tech not so long ago about who won the Civil War and these basic history questions. And no one knew the answer. So in asking children to do these things, is it a box-ticking exercise or are we asking children to think? What's the result of our requirements? I think that's the question I would like answered because I don't know that we're gaining from it. So if I were to ask you, Lois, you have a magic wand and all you have to do is wave it and you get to change the education system, what would it look like? I would want teachers to be more curious and I think, you know, I would get rid of standardized testing. Mm. I don't think that's producing what we want. So, you know, I really like that answer because uh, I was reading, I was reading something not too long ago about uh, creativity, and uh, and the way the brain works. It actually, it wasn't reading; it was a show on. I don't remember what channel it was. I think it was Discovery. It was called Brain Games, and they talked about all of these simple problems that that children could solve that adults couldn't. Because of how the education system kind of beats uh, alternative thinking out of you, yes. right? <laughs> With standardized yes. testing, yes, uh, huh? Yes, yeah, yeah. And yeah. what else happens is that because we, we, as children, get rewarded for getting the right answer, we then lose our creativity. So it's a double-edged sword. Not only are we not doing it, we're then not encouraged to do it. See, you just, that one right there just reminded me, and, and I don't know if we talked about this on the SDIG recording or not, uh, but, but being uh, an Australian, have you ever heard the story of a gentleman named Cliff Young? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I yes. shared it earlier uh, on, on the podcast a few episodes ago, but what you just said right there, how you said it reminded me of the story of Cliff Young 100%. Um, and, and for the listeners who haven't, haven't heard it, I'll give you a very watered-down version mm -hmm. of it. Cliff Young, Australian, uh, his, uh, his family-owned, I think it was like a couple thousand acre uh, farm, had sheep, the whole nine yards on it. And uh, one day they were having a, I don't want to say one day, uh, it was a several-day race. It was from uh, Sydney to Melbourne or Melbourne to Sydney, Sydney. I can't remember which way. Yeah. But it was like a 540-mile uh, ultra marathon. Yeah. 
And uh, folks are at the starting line. And this, I want to say he was, I want to say he was 62. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this this older fellow shows up wearing uh, coveralls and, and muck boots. And uh, he had his dentures out because he said that they, they clanged together when he ran. So he had his dentures out. And everybody's just looking at him like, what are you doing here? Because these are highly trained athletes uh, with sponsorships and the best gear and a crew and the whole nine yards. And Cliff just shows up because he said he had a couple days off and he wanted to run. And long story short, it was the ultimate tortoise and the hare race because at the end of the race, he finished, I think it was eight or 12 hours ahead of second place. And he had broken the record by almost a day and a half, if I remember right. And because he, nobody had ever told him that he, how he should run. run. He had developed his style, right? Yeah. And didn't he run a phenomenal number of hours? He just ran longer. I mean, ran, I mean, ran longer during the day, and he didn't rest so much. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. That was it. Like the 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 runners who standardized knew what they were supposed to do. I think they ran for 18 hours a day and slept for six. Cliff said he, he didn't realize that you were supposed to rest. He just ran the whole way through. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But it, it's amazing what you said there because it was like, here's this guy who didn't know what he was supposed to, to do. do. He just did it. And and, and the, the rub with the rest of the story for everybody is when they went back and they analyzed his methods – it was better. It was more efficient. And everybody started adopting, they used to call it the Cliff Young Shuffle. Now they just call it the Ultra Marathon Shuffle. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. For, for the longest time, they would call it the, the, they would run the Cliff Young Shuffle. Yeah. And, uh, but, so how many of those things are we missing out on? Because we keep people doing what they're supposed to be doing instead of let them do what do they feel the way to do it is. There's a lot about learning that's in, you know, in a whole variety of books, you know, like the curious and the brains, all of that, and yet we come back and we really only want kids to do it the normal way. And so I think that's a real challenge that we've got over the next decade. How are we going to educate our children? What are we going to do? Or are we just going to sit back and use, you know, let the big book companies drive the instruction like what has happened in the past. So I, I don't know the answers. Mm. Well, Lois, we've been talking here for almost 50 minutes. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground, and I really appreciate you sharing and, and, and uh, you know, being open and, and honest and vulnerable as always because uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully with the audio, the, the passion and the commitment uh, in your voice has, has translated for, for the listeners. I hope so too. You know, teaching reading to the most vulnerable students to me is the best job in the world. And that's what I want teachers to say. It's the best job in the world. I love it. I love it. Well, before we go to uh, closing out here, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on that you would like to circle back to? No, I think we've covered it really well. You know, the curiosity being curious, the taking time with people. I think of the messages we'd like, you know, the employers to get through and then just look at people through a different lens. Love it. I love it. Well, 
Lois, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I, I really appreciate everything you've said, and, and I've really enjoyed the time here. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, if, if people want to find out more, uh, maybe pick up a copy of the book, Reversed, a memoir. Um, or if there's parents out there that maybe want to reach out to you about their child, how can they, uh, how can they get a hold of you? Um, my website is loisletchford.com. Reach me there. I answer any questions. I talk to parents and check out my YouTube channel. And, yeah, just contact me through my website. Okay. And uh, as, as always, listeners, I'll have some links to those in, in the show notes. Uh, I highly recommend going out and picking up a copy of, of the book. Uh, no matter what you're, you're facing, uh, no matter what situation you're in, whether you're an educator yourself, uh, whether you are a manager and trying to figure out how to unlock the potential in one of your employees, I think this book is going to have some, some good insight for you. Reversed, a memoir by Lois Letchford. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you can reach out to me at burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, appreciate you going out and, and uh, subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing the show so awesome guests like Lois can get their ideas uh, spread far and wide. Uh, if you have any ideas for future guests, hit me at that email address as well. And with that, thank you for your time, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electric Acid. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interviews. Electric acid.